just kind of think through uh, one verse in particular, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6. We're going to work through that over the Christmas season, but the, the elders thought that it would be good in January if we do a, a short series just on the state of the church, just as we're, we're a, a young church and we've got a lot of, uh, of new families that have, uh, have been regularly coming here. Uh, we want to um, just continue to put forward uh, who we are by God's grace as a local church, how we function as a local church, uh, and so uh, particular distinctives about Deer Park Fellowship. We're going to work through that uh, over the course of January and maybe a week or two into um, the month of February, and then we're going to pick right back up uh, with Mark chapter 4. I'm going to re-preach since we will have all forgotten the first three chapters, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> No, but uh, we'll pick up with Mark chapter 4, and then we, we will, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to being able to do that. But, but this morning, uh, I'm going to do a, a standalone uh, sermon, and it's one that I wanted to do kind of at the beginning of all the, the, the different holidays, with Thanksgiving and Christmas, we've got New Year's coming up, and, and this morning I have in mind uh, those who are particularly suffering uh, in our congregation, uh, and, and that suffering could take the shape of emotional pain, okay? It could be depression, it could be anxiety, uh, the struggle could be physical, right? It could be a, a chronic pain, that, that struggle could be a, a disease that's even wearing on your body and, and, and all a result from the first sin in the, in the Garden of Eden, right? And, and, um, and perhaps this struggle for some of you and your limitations because of it, maybe around the holiday season that your, your kind of weaknesses that you have, uh, you have a more heightened sense of those particular weaknesses this time of year. And, and while many of you struggling may require various medical interventions, various biological helps that we can be thankful to God for that in his common grace he's given to us, all of us need, every one of us needs to be counseled as well from the Word of God. So this morning, the aim is to be counseled uh, by the Holy Spirit of God through the writings of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. And, and just the, the title of the sermon this morning is Five Ways to Combat Despair. Five Ways to Combat Despair. And so let me read... Let me read these few verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to work through this text together. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he penned these words to the church of Philippi. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. God, again, just you've inspired it, that you've preserved it, Lord, and that, that your spirit through your word can, in fact, guard our hearts in our minds, in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that for this church body, Lord. I pray that for myself this morning. And we love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, I'm not going to give a, a, a ton of context up front here because the, the context of this letter is going to become more and more clear as we work through the, the sermon together this morning. But you should know that this, this letter, it was written uh, by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it from a prison in Rome, and, and, at the, at, and he's in prison because of his faith, and he's facing uh, martyr, martyrdom at, at, at this particular point. He, he's, he's, he's looking to uh, perhaps be uh, uh, executed as a result of his unwavering faith in Christ Jesus. And so he, he's presently suffering at the time of, of writing this particular letter. And this letter is written uh, for the church of Philippi, which was a, a congregation that the Apostle Paul was instrumental in planting uh, in starting somewhere in the early 50s of the, the, the first century. And, and, and this is a letter uh, the, the, the Apostle Paul, addressed, there's, there's several different themes in, in this particular letter, if you were to read it all the way through, but it's probably most known or its, it's more obvious theme uh, is, is that of abiding joy. And, and this theme of abiding joy, it would have been extremely comforting to this church because one of the many challenges that she was facing uh, was one of, of, of suffering and suffering at no fault of her own. Suffering actually, similar, similarly to Paul, although not as extreme by, at this stage in the game, suffering uh, because of her faith in Christ Jesus. So as Paul suffers, and he's suffering this, this very same thing, he writes to edify, to encourage this particular body of believers. And so, so that's just, a, again, brief kind of initial flyover context, but we'll see more of it as we go on. And I would even encourage you even to, today, maybe just sit down with your family. You could read through uh, the, the chapters. And Philippians is a, is a very short book, and you could read through it in 10 to 15 minutes to get a clearer understanding of the context. Um, but if you're taking notes, uh, you can, you'll, find, you'll find these takeaways in your worship guide. Um, but kids, you're, you're using kind of the fill in the blank. I'm going to give you one central point, and everything else that we work through this morning is going to be a sub-point of this main overarching thing that we all need to get internalized, let it seep into every crevice uh, of our being. And, and the point is that being God-centered, it keeps you from despair. Being God-centered keeps you from despair. Okay, so that's, that is the overarching point. If you don't take away anything else from the sermon this morning, if you check out after this, right, Take away being God-centered keeps you from despair, and we'll we'll flesh out how to be God-centered as we go on this morning. But we get the sense of that first point if we pay attention to the repetition in our text. Right? Pay pay attention to to the text's God-centeredness. We see Paul; he exhorts this suffering church to rejoice in the Lord. Right? Not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. He tells them, the Lord is at hand. He says, make your requests known to who? To God. Right? And Paul reminds them that the peace of God will, will guard them and, and guard us in Christ Jesus. Right? Just a couple of verses here, but we can see the God-centered nature of the Apostle Paul's counsel to this church that's struggling, counseling that he himself would have um, 
given to himself, that he, he would have self-counseled, if you, if you will, to, to persevere, as I think we'll see that as, as we go through the, the text a little bit more this morning and pull in some other passages of Scripture. But we all orient our lives around something, every single one of us. And, and it, it would do us well to, to see that we either order our lives, orient our lives around a creature, or we, we orient, orient our lives around the Creator. All right, Paul, just before this passage that, I, that we're looking at this morning, he tells the church of Philippi not to do anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit. We see that in verses 3 to 4 of Philippians chapter 2. But where, where, does, where does selfish ambition come from? Where does vain conceit come from? It comes from being self-centered, right? It comes from being self-centered. It comes from being wrapped up in your own world. And and the problem is, is that self-centeredness is self-worship, right? Self-centeredness is self-worship. It's idolatry and our idols, they never deliver the way that, 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 that we wish that they would deliver for us, right? They leave us empty, Every single time. So, so we need to know right out of the gate that Paul, he's consoling this suffering church and he's doing so in a way that is the antithesis of just modern therapeutic approaches that we often see. He's counseling this church to be God-centered, okay, to be God-centered because that's what every sinner, saint, sufferer needs, to be God-centered. And that just isn't, it's not just glorifying to God, but it's genuinely good for us. It's genuinely good for us. A God-centeredness, it calms the storm that tends to rage inside of us. Just like the eye of the storm is the calmest, so Christ at the, the center of the storms of our lives will produce this inner calm. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't, we don't struggle this side of eternity, right? Much of our lives this side of eternity consists in, in suffering. We suffer a lot, especially emotional suffering. Much of our lives consist of thorns and thistles that, again, were, were introduced when Adam disobeyed in the garden. So, so we shouldn't be surprised by our struggles in this life, nor should we carry the expectation with us that being God-centered means that we'll never struggle. We shouldn't have that sort of expectation, this kind of over-realized eschatology, if you will, or this kind of prosperity sort of theology. If I'm just God-centered enough, then, then I'll be healthy or I'll be wealthy. We don't see that in Scripture. Right? That's not true. But we shouldn't be cynics either. Right? We don't want to be a cynical people expecting the worst and cultivating in our lives this kind of glum or defeatist heart posture. That, that's not a godly perspective either. The, the God orientation that Paul counsels here, it didn't change the circumstances for the church of Philippi, nor did it change the apostle Paul's circumstances for many of you sitting in this room this morning, right, being God-centered, it may not be the fix to your anxious and depressed emotions. It may not be the fix to your physical ailments, but it's the very thing that the Lord will use to keep you from despair. 
Because being God-focused, being God-oriented, it produces that abiding joy that we see pervasive in the book of Philippians, but certainly pervasive throughout all of Scripture. Being God-oriented, it shapes your hearts, and it shapes your mind because it shapes your hearts. It sets your mind on those things that are true, those things that are noble, those things that are pure, those things that are lovely, those things that are of good report, those things that are virtuous, those things that are praiseworthy. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9. So, so let's look for just the remainder of our time at, at how we can be God-centered. Okay, we see that we need to be God-centered, right? So, so we, can, we can say amen to that, but how can we be a people that, that cultivates in our lives a God-centeredness, all right? So we, we see the need, but how do we, we do it? And, and that's the question that I think Paul fleshes out just in these first, uh, just in these few verses, and so we see, and again, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. We see that he gives the commandment to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Right? Hear me on this. Rejoice. Right? Rejoice here, it means, it means to be glad. To be glad or to be in a state of gladness or to be in a state of happiness. Now this, this kind of rejoicing, the, the Greek term denotes, is not only a feeling or expression of joy, but it's an action that you choose. In other words, rejoicing is, is, a, is a verb. Rejoicing here, as Paul is giving it, is a command. We must rejoice. Now, if you're hearing words like glad and happiness, and these are words that I don't think we as Christians should be shy about. You know, I, th I think that, that those terms have fallen on hard times in Christian context, and, and, I, and I think they fit quite well into a theology of suffering. Gladness and happiness can fit into our theology of suffering. But for, for those of you suffering, you may think to yourself, that's impossible. That's impossible. Right? Given, the, given the circumstances that I'm in, it's impossible. But this command here, given by God through the Apostle Paul, in light of your union with Christ, says otherwise. It says otherwise. You can be happy in the Lord. You can be glad in the Lord. Rejoicing is something you do in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. In our difficult circumstances or our depressed emotions, they don't exempt us from this grand, glorious exercise of faith. I made mention ago of Paul's circumstances when, when he wrote this letter, but it's worth seeing his, pers his perspective come through in this letter regarding those cir circumstances. Look with me at verses 12 to 14 of chapter 1 in Philippians. Paul says this, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident, Paul says, by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Notice the, 
the significance of what rejoicing does to a man here. Rejoicing in the Lord is what conditioned Paul to be able to praise God for the good that he was accomplishing through Paul's imprisonment while facing potential execution. These are pretty dire circumstances. Right? Paul said that the gospel was furthered, that it was advanced. Right? Paul said that his being in prison emboldened other believers to proclaim the gospel of God without fear, or rather, with a proper fear of God and not a fear of man, right? The rejoicing, it didn't change Paul's circumstances, but the rejoicing, which again isn't a pretending that things are okay this side of eternity, but the rejoicing shaped Paul's perspective and it focused him on eternal things, those unseen things that matter in this life and in the next. Right, Paul, Paul was so God-centered, so consumed with rejoicing in the Lord, that he was happy to count his chains in a Roman prison as the symbol for his chains in Christ Jesus. In some sense saying, God put me here for a purpose, for a reason. Right, his chains in prison, it served as a reminder to Paul that the whole palace guard, right, that Paul was joyfully, that, that, he, that he was enslaved because of, was being served through their own enslavement of, of him. And it didn't change Paul's circumstances, right? But it, but it shaped his perspective, and it was the engine of his very perseverance. Right? So we, we have in Paul an example that we, we always have a reason to rejoice in the Lord. One commentator sums this command up to rejoice nicely. He says, the essence of the matter is to so value Jesus Christ and so to long for the smile of his approval that nothing else matters. He is all our joy. So we cultivate God-centeredness in our lives, first and foremost, by rejoicing in the Lord. And we can do that. We have the, the capacity by God's grace to do that. Again, that doesn't, that doesn't make everything okay. That isn't, that isn't, uh, th- that's not us pretending there's not grief and lament and, and hurt and sorrow and pain and all of those things that come with suffering. But rejoice can live in that same world as all of, all of that. And we see that demonstrated time and time again throughout the scriptures. So that's the first thing, rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, be merciful and gracious to everyone. Be merciful and gracious to everyone. Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all men. To all men. Now, that word gentleness is, is translated as reasonableness by the ESV. It's translated as graciousness by the CSB. And it's translated as moderation by the KJV. Now, it, it's being known for being consistently merciful and gracious in your relationships with others without discrimination. It's, it's to, be, to be steady in reflecting the kindness God has demonstrated to us in Christ to other people, okay? Now the, the afflictions and, and the sufferings that we experience in life, they have the, the, propen- they have the propensity to, to produce bitterness in our lives when we're not God-centered. 
right? And, and when they have the, the propensity to produce bitterness in our, in our lives when we're not rejoicing, when there's no room for rejoicing in our suffering. And, and when that bitterness takes root and is uh, nurtured inwardly, it ends up manifesting itself in the way that we treat other people. Right? Instead of being merciful and gracious, we grow cruel and we grow entitled toward others. I, I, I think this was a real struggle in the church of Philippi. There, there were these two women in the church that were at odds with one another that Paul mentions just a few verses before our primary text this morning. But even at a general level, there seems to be this struggle with, with unity and self-centeredness in the midst of this, the, the persecution that this suffering church was, was experiencing. Look at Philippians 2 verses 1 to 4. Paul says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of of others. All right, so, so Paul here is grounding the church of Philippi in the consolation of, of Christ Jesus, and he charges them to be of one accord. He charges them to have singularity of, of, of mind, to esteem others as better than, than oneself, to look out for the interest of others, to forsake selfishness and to forsake this sense of entitlement. And where does Paul go? to give us the chief example for how we ought to be, right? If you keep reading in Philippians chapter 2, right, get down to verse 5, he directs our gaze toward Christ. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, right? Christ Truly God became man and he suffered, right? He's the, only, he's the only innocent person, truly innocent person to have ever suffered. He's the only true victim to have walked the earth. And he suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross. And his suffering, Christ's suffering, was our redemption. It was our redemption, right? His suffering made us right with the triune God for all eternity, Right? Christ, he's not just put forward as, as our Savior in this passage, but he's put forward for us and as, a, as an example of, how to, to, of a well-spent life, to ha, to, how, how to spend our lives well for the glory of God. And if we share union with Jesus, which if, if we're Christians, we do, right? That's one of the things that the Lord's Supper pictures for us every single week is that we share union with Christ. Our lives are, are closely identified with the life of Christ, so much so that in the eyes of God, they're inseparable. Right? If we share union with Jesus Christ, we should, as Paul says elsewhere, not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. By looking to him as our example of how to suffer well. 
to be God-centered means that we live with the type of perspective that even our sufferings can be used by him for the benefit of people around us. Right? That, that God takes the evil that we're afflicted with, real evil that we're afflicted with this side of eternity, evil that, that the enemy wants to use to destroy us. And instead, he accomplishes his good eternal purposes, not just for you, but for those around you as well. Right? We, we, sh- we should live toward others in such a way that that message is magnified to them. Right? Which means we need to live in such a way that Jesus is magnified toward others. So in our sufferings, even on those especially dark days in our lives, we may be tempted to be angry. That's a real temptation that we all face. We may be tempted to lash out, but we need to take a step back, right? And we look to Christ whose sufferings did eternal good. And as we suffer and seek to honor him by loving others in the midst of our sufferings, we fellowship with Christ, who's our suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 53. So be merciful and gracious to others, right? Do good where God has you, where he has you from a, from a, uh, a health standpoint, right? And, and where he has you in your various vocations in life. Seek to do eternal good as we look to emulate our Savior. Third, remember Christ is coming back. Remember that Christ is coming back. Right in the second part of verse 5, Paul says, The Lord is at hand. And we see similar language in James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that helps give us a clue as to Paul, what Paul means when he uses this phrase. James says this, he says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Right? James is saying, prepare yourselves for eternity because Jesus is definitely coming back. He's definitely coming back. All right, Paul in our passage is pressing in on the church of Philippi to live with a mindfulness, to live presently with a mindfulness of Jesus' second advent. All right, Paul's saying, yes, he has ascended. Yes, he's at the right hand of God, but he will return. He will return, right? The king is coming back. Is there anything more comforting than this? Nothing. There's nothing more comforting than this, right? I, I so long for this. I so long to be in the eternal safety of my Savior. I long for that. And while it's so beneficial to think about Christ's second coming, I'm afraid that we don't meditate on it enough. We don't meditate on it enough. A crucial aspect of being God-centered is to regularly remember that Jesus is coming. And when we have that perspective, it allows us to describe our sufferings the way that the Apostle Paul does elsewhere when he says, has the audacity to say, describe them as light and momentary, what? Afflictions. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18. That isn't Paul trivializing suffering. Paul suffered immensely, right? Some of you in the congregation this morning have suffered immensely. There are real unspeakable things that happen in this life, this side of eternity. But Paul calls his immense suffering light momentary afflictions when compared to what? 
when compared with the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Verse 17 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The weight of glory to be revealed when God in Christ makes everything new is such a grand inheritance. It's a more substantial thing. When the worst of sufferings is compared to the glory of being with our triune God forever, there's truly no comparison. There's no comparison. And it's hard to believe that right now, isn't it? It is. Honestly. Our sufferings cloud that. Our sin nature clouds that. Our grief clouds that. But we get glimpses of the truthfulness of it, even this side of eternity. Are we getting a glimpse this morning as we're, we're here gathered at this dress rehearsal of our eternal rest in Jesus Christ? So suffering saint, the, the weight of glory is coming, which is to say that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And the gain, the gain that is Christ Jesus, right? he, he's our possession. That gain is what makes our sorrows light and momentary. So we need to think on that. We need to meditate on that, the return of Christ. We need to do that regularly. Next, we see the Apostle Paul say, pray to God. Pray to God. It says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That word anxious, the, the Hebrew equivalent is to, is to quake with fear or to, to worry. And the command to be anxious for nothing is immediately followed with this charge to pray about everything. Now, if we put it another way, Paul's saying, what, what should we worry about? The answer is nothing. What should we pray about? Everything. And, and how little do we avail ourselves of prayer? Right? I know I miss so many opportunities in my own life. But the Holy Spirit of God through Paul says that we can pray about everything. We can pray about everything. I think of those construction companies that have on their side, the side of their trucks. I don't know if you see this when you drive around, but they, they have kind of, it's I guess a slogan that says, no job too small, if you've ever, you've ever seen that. Many of us perhaps approach our prayer lives with the sort of mindset of, well, I don't want to bother God with this. There, there are bigger and more important things that, that are going on. Yet, right, the Holy Spirit of God, through that word everything, is saying to you, no job too small. Right? No job too small. Right? Children, you teach us adults a lot about prayer. I, I love the way that you pray. Kids, they know that, that God cares about everything. It's, it's incredible to me. Right? And, and, and that belief, right, that wholehearted belief shapes their prayers. If you've ever heard a, a little kid praying. Right? And I think that perhaps that's one of the reasons that Jesus says that unless you become like a child, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
We should perhaps be tutored by our children on prayer and what God cares about. So we should pray about everything, but how should we approach the Lord in prayer? What should, what should our heart posture be? Right? Paul answers that in this text as well. He says, with thanksgiving. We approach God with thanksgiving. Right? Interestingly, the Greek word for thanksgiving is Eucharistia. What do you hear when I say that word? Eucharist. All right? The Lord's Supper. And what, what's the Lord's Supper reminding us of? It's reminding us of our suffering Savior. Right? Even on our worst days, we have to remember that Christ became a curse for us and that in, in exchange, we became the righteousness of God. Right? We, we earned death, which is what Christ inherited. What Christ earned, eternal life, is what we inherited. And that reality should shape our prayers, right? A heart posture of thankfulness is the outcome of God in Christ giving himself for us, his body and his blood. And it's the source of, of this deep abiding joy that Paul is pressing in on here in the book of Philippians. So we counter anxieties, whatever the root cause of those anxieties are. And again, there, there's, there's, there's different ways in which we can approach addressing anxiety. But one of the things that we all need as it relates to emotional suffering is to combat it through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We speak to God about everything. No job too small, nothing too trivial for this good king who loves you and who saved you. And then the final thing is we seek to be a people who are God-centered. Is we need to remember that the peace of God in Christ guards you forever. Have keeps, and I changed the word last minute, sorry, guards you. Verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Prayer here is, is connected to both the peace of God and the guarding of your heart and your mind. Right? Pr prayer cultivates these things in our inner man. And when I see that phrase, peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it seems like the Holy Spirit is telling us you can't even imagine how good the peace of God is. Right? One commentator calls the peace of God a guardian peace. In the Old Testament, it possesses the root meaning of wholeness, of, of inner wholeness. It's a peace that was accomplished in Jesus Christ between us and God and a peace that we can even enjoy amongst one another. Right? Christ made peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And what does this peace do for us? Right? According to the Apostle Paul, again, it guards our hearts and it guards our minds. Right, the, 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 the Greek word for heart means the center seat of the person. It, it's the place from which everything that we meditate or think on comes from. So, so to guard the heart directly benefits how we think, right? It d directly benefits your meditations, right? That, that sort of deep abiding peace that is available according to the apostle paul is available to us now 
right? Christ, he accomplished it. And as we avail ourselves of spending time with the Lord in prayer, again, this is connected to our time in prayer, the peace of God, the shalom of God shapes our inner person and it renews our very thinking. So this morning, I want us to walk away encouraged to be God-centered, right? And, and, and as we're God-centered, as we seek more and more day by day to depend on the Holy Spirit of God to be God-centered, we'll find that we can have joy, deep abiding joy, no matter the circumstances in our lives. And so we want to seek to be a God-centered person. And a God-centered person, again, rejoices in the Lord no matter what. A God-centered person is gracious and merciful to all people. A God-centered person thinks regularly on the return of Jesus Christ. A God-centered person is a prayerful person. And a God-centered person is someone who remembers that the peace of God in Christ guards you forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here that are, that are suffering. I pray that by your grace, that you would help them, help all of us, Lord, to be God-centered. No matter what we face, knowing that as we are, Lord, you keep us from despair. God, and you produce in us that deep, abiding joy that's made possible only through the shed blood of Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the portion of our service where we come to the Lord's table. And if you're a guest with us this morning, we don't require membership for you to